Grief is complex. So is our mental health. It cannot be understood by diagnosis alone. Our philosophy is treat the person, not the mental illness. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Humanizing Mental Health. I'm Jeremy Alcorn. I'm Trent Nakers. In our last episode, we explored Trenton's story as uh, one of the humans behind the mic in our podcast. Right. And this time, Jeremy, we're going to turn the tables and uh, explore your story. So, uh, Jeremy Alcorn, this is your life. Uh, to assist us in this, uh, my daughter... Amy Alcorn Henricks will be joining us and maybe chiming in with some thoughts, feelings, or insights as we move forward. Yeah, I look forward to hearing her uh, funny anecdotes about maybe when you uh, misplaced your socks. <laughs> yeah, no, no pressure, Amy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in light of that, let me just uh, start off with the question that we normally ask most of our um, guests. Who are you and what brings you to the show today? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, right? Um, I guess the, the, the foundation uh, for me was realizing that, in my opinion, some of the narrative of mental health is not very helpful. And, uh, and, and that had been kind of the the first foundations for, for me in thinking that something needed to change, that, that people had the ability to be able to heal, that some of the, the reasons why maybe some people were, were not healing is because of the, the philosophy or the understanding of what mental health is. And for a lot of people, that means that they have to keep who they are hidden and and so i thought maybe by sharing people could see that you don't you don't need to hide that that that's okay yeah and you know as i hear that that's a really powerful statement especially for a mental health professional because in our um chosen careers there's such a debate about whether or not how much of ourselves do we truly reveal and for you it's you know you're like no wait in order for other people to open up and to heal i also need to be the human and say you know what i am not in this point where you don't get to know anything about me i'm going to be on the same level as you for sure and isn't that fantastic because in this sort of venue um then then we can can fully do that and have um, individuals, you know, hear hear our story, and maybe some of that resonates for them. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, in directly in in the therapy session, then the, the focus needs to be on them, mm -hmm. and uh, and and our our stories, while they may be helpful, uh, could if the the spotlight becomes on us, and then that becomes a problem. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's about what is the healing journey, and really. Is your story the most palpable and the most really important and useful for them at the time? Hopefully, you know, as people listen to your story, hopefully they can find those moments for them that resonate um, where they connect with you. Yeah, so I'd be happy to share. I am the youngest of seven children. Um, I had to do the calculation in my head because I, I have, I grew up with five sisters and mm -hmm. of course you go with five sisters. Well, that makes six of you. Uh, but I, I also have one brother and um, in, in my mind, I actually have to keep reminding myself about that because I, he was the second oldest. I never grew up with them because he died as an infant at around, I think it was, it was within a month of life from sudden infant death syndrome. And so my, my experience is that that was part of shaping me in terms of my experiences uh, in a couple of ways. One, because during that, that time period, as my dad has said many times, he said that my, my, my mom was in a place in which she needed a baby to love and that there was a baby that needed love. And so my 
second oldest sister was adopted and she is actually part of what they call the 60s scoop and uh, and I imagine we'll we'll talk about this more as it relates to trauma and so forth uh, we'll probably talk about it in another episode uh, so the 60s scoop was this placement of indigenous uh, Canadians into non-indigenous homes so my my sister is from the the blood tribe and is 11 years older than me wow you know as as i hear that like the one thing that kind of st- um stands out to me is that um your the death of your brother i mean it, it really kind of shaped your identity in terms of who you are and you know in the sense that you were having to almost fill this need. Yeah, yeah. Like one, one of the ways that I think that became really relevant, and, and this has to do with uh, uh, what, I, what I call the attachment narrative. One of the ways that's relevant is that my um, sister that was adopted um, became very, very attached to me. And, uh, and I, I didn't really understand exactly how influential that was until I, I started to understand more about what attachment does and it being the foundation of really everything that we learn, we learn through this connected um, experience in our development. And my sister became an attachment competition with my parents. Fascinating. So um, now when you say in an attachment competition with your parents, um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I was more tightly connected in, in important ways with my sister than I was with my mom or my dad. Okay. Um, what, what do you think really for you um, drew you to your sister more um, than to your parents? Yeah, this, it's a good question. I think it actually had more to do with, because attachment is both ways. Attachment is about this little, little infant baby that has a need to uh, attach because if they don't, then they die. They don't have a, any way to be able to survive without someone taking care of them. But attachment is also about the older people that need have a need or a feeling for a need to take care of that child. And so my response was more to the attachment needs of my sister, who... Um, in, in her own uh, experience, had lived through significant trauma before she ever uh, was a part of our family. And, uh, and she very closely then attached to me, and, and my connection was in response to that. Wow. So you guys really had sort of this symbiotic um, feeling of empathy, and like right there, because as you and I both know that one of the things that as a therapist that you really need to be is you need to be a surrogate attachment figure. I can almost hear that there were those seeds of your career that were already planted and taking root with your sister. Yeah, you know what? That's that's really interesting. I, I hadn't actually thought of that. And you're, you're, you're probably correct, like in terms of the some of the ways that key ways that I developed. Now, the... The other part of this, though, is that with the death of my brother, um, that had specific impacts on on my parents. And my my mom really, really wanted to be able to have a chance to raise a son. And, um, of course, she had one son die and then had daughters. Mm-hmm. And... And, and And then between me and my closest sibling in age, there is five years difference. And during that time, they had issues of um, uh, having the pregnancies that were lost, okay. so miscarriages and so forth. And uh, and and so then then I was born, and and my mom at this point in time had already developed rheumatoid arthritis, and she she had this so so bad that uh, there wasn't any moment in time that she wasn't in pain. And she had it in uh, on basically all her joints in her body, and and so uh, two things that are relevant with that. One being, I I was the boy that lived, 
uh, and there was a sense of in, in me from the time that I was just before I can remember that I was supposed to be great. I was supposed to be special. Wow, I, I'm just I'm I'm hearing that like, and I, I can almost imagine like you're you're kind of having to live and kind of represent everything to your parents about what a boy should be because you're you're not just living for yourself and having your own experience but you're almost living for your brother too in a way it sounds yeah. like and uh, and and then uh, in terms of how my siblings related to each other i i was uh, there <laughs> there was a, a fair bit of conflict you know sibling rival- rivalry that uh, that occurred in our house and stuff it's just that it seemed to be in terms of relationships that for every one of my sisters, I was the most important sibling relationship to them. And you know, I, I like almost what you hear nowadays, that concept of bubble wrapped kids, you know, like where kids are almost helicopter parented. It almost sounded like for your family, it was like, we have a second chance. We have this piece of gold. We, it was almost like you were, um, you know, like a, a toy that you don't take out of the wrapper or you have to be very careful. So, oh, don't do that with Jeremy because we don't, you know, you don't want to lose him. You don't want to do different things. And I almost wonder how did that impact your relationship with your sisters because you were always seen as, you know, the special child, the boy that yeah. lived. You know, and interestingly enough, one of the things that really happened for me is I built a very kind of strong sense of autonomy. You know, mm. that uh, where is it that I would feel most secure and, and that was autonomous. So I would, I, at uh, age six, I had cooked my own soup and I had put it in a bowl that was flimsy and I had brought it into the living room and I had it on my lap and it was like boiling hot and it spilled on me and it gave me like a, um, a second de- degree burn on my, on my leg. Uh, and once again, just because I was going to do this on my own, mm-hmm. this is, um, and, 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 and that, that position of autonomy, well, that's, that's great that you, you get a sense of ability and confidence. Um, it also doesn't work really well uh, in more close or intimate relationships if you can't allow closeness. Yeah. Well, well yeah, because like just letting somebody in and, and letting somebody help you and, and being vulnerable, because I think it sounds to me like for you, vulnerability was foisted upon you so it's like okay i don't want to be vulnerable i want to be independent so you were forming that relationship so that you could have a real identity that was your own am i wrong yeah for sure and and one of the things of course at least in in my experience or how i would understand my experience is that i i really don't remember uh being told no and that wasn't good for me no yeah, um, like I, because the thing is, is that they talk about where, where children need boundaries and boundaries are not only there to keep you safe, but it provides children a sense of security and to know that they're, they're loved and they're respected. And in life, you're not going to have everything go your way. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't learn to hear no and to deal with the the feelings that come from not being able to have your way, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a big hole in, in your skill set of how to regulate yourself. Mm-hmm. Inter- yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because uh, luckily enough, we have your daughter here with us. And I'm really curious because we've now talked about those fundamental moments and really those core elements of who you were as a child. And I'm really curious about how those grew and how those manifested in terms of your connection with your children. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in fact, Amy, I don't know if anything is knocked loose for you or thoughts or feelings that you might have. Um, Just as you were speaking, saying how your experience is that you're never told no. I thought about my experience as a child and how I'm the firstborn and 
when I came into the world, you were still in university and um, had only been married for about a year to my mom. So, and and in your early twenties too. So just kind of poor starting off family. So me being the the firstborn, I would naturally want things as a kid, like any kid would. And I'm pretty sure my second name was <laughs> No Amy. Because <laughs> you, you'd all be saying, no, Amy, no, Amy, we can't get that. We don't have enough money. So that's what I heard a lot growing up. Well, especially in the first years of my life when we didn't have a lot of money. But later on, we got a little bit more money and things kind of changed. Well, I imagine so. that might have been, to a certain degree, somewhat confusing, actually. I, I used to say things, you know, being silly and and uh, and, and somewhat sarcastic, we would we go somewhere and, and, and Amy would want something. She'd want something from a machine or whatever that takes some coins or, and, yeah. and I'd be like, all I got is this credit card. That's all I got. So if you can make this thing work in there, then okay. But other than that, then no. Interesting. Just, just, I mean, I'm, you know, I, but I, it's, it's almost like, um, well, unintentionally so, but you, your daughter kind of, yeah, you. It's almost like an overcorrection in a way, unintentional overcorrection. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah. uh, if you were to look at our experiences, then in a big way, they would be like a reverse mirror in mm-hmm. in, in that aspect. Yeah, and you know, and I think that a lot of um, people when they go to have children, because you know, it's the old saying of you know, I'm going to give the children the life that, that I didn't have or give them the sense of stability or whatever it is and then it's about you know they will go from one side to the other and then the question is, is that how does that impact um, that child's sense of self and then your ability to connect with them because in some cases that would have a positive impact and in others um, it may have um, a little bit of a deleterious impact Not 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 that you know you know, saying no is a bad thing, but it's just, you know, it's about how do you kind of find that middle ground? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I, I couldn't at the time actually get Amy lots of the things that she wanted because I didn't have the ability to. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I think my my own um, experience of, uh, of of not learning that ability to regulate and not have everything, you know, and get my way probably influenced without me realizing it very significantly mm-hmm. um, me setting those boundaries for my own kids, which I probably did too strong. I don't know. You can, you can, you can chime in there, Amy. I think I probably did too strong. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. But like you said, it was um, part of it was a huge financial thing for you. And so when my brother was born, we were a little bit more well off. So he didn't, grew up with being told no 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 all the time mm-hmm. well you know i i almost wish we could we could get germ on the line here yeah and then the funny thing is with that um i think that that likely there was a sense at times or maybe a feeling that there was a double standard um because amy's experience earlier was so different than jerem's experience like hey wait a minute why is the, well i don't get it why is this the case this isn't fair yeah, and there again too. I mean, we're we're just kind of stumbling into the whole um, concept of birth order and how how you're born. Even though, yes, it it's a little bit trite and it has entered into pop psychology to some degree. But really, how you're born and at what time can really impact your relationship with your parents and really your sense of self and your attachment. Yeah, for sure. So the other thing that I think is really relevant um, in terms of my early development is my dad, who's like 84 now. Okay. Um, he was a, a truck driver most of my life. And um, I was born when he was 39 years old. And uh, he... When I was two, he got into a really bad uh, crash. So he was pulling a, a set, a double set of of trailers, and something went went wrong mechanically with the brake system, and he crashed. Uh, was was thrown against the ceiling of the the semi. The semis being made of fiberglass. It actually bowed. 
he was unconscious. He woke up and he kept saying, where's the steering wheel? Where's the steering wheel? The steering wheel's gone. Where's the steering wheel? He climbed out of the truck. Uh, what had happened is that the steering wheel uh, had actually jammed all the way through the driver's seat. So if he'd been wearing a seatbelt, then he would have been dead. By the way, this isn't a statement to say seatbelts are, <laughs> don't wear your seatbelt, not, not at all. It's just that in that particular set of circumstances, that's how close to dying he was. And then when he came home and, and um, I was just two years old and they, of course, I, I heard them talking, whatever. Then when he would go out and drive again, then when people would talk about him, my siblings and so forth, I would, I would refuse to let them speak about our dad. I would say, he's dead. He's not coming home. Fascinating. Like, like, so for you, like, like, I'm just like living in a sense of fear. Like, you know, because like for you, uh, that, that young moment, because for so many of us, you know, when we're young, our, our parents almost seem superhuman. And it, it's sort of that, that sense that, that reality can almost provide us a sense of safety. But for you, that illusion was completely shattered. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so then um, one of my, my siblings told my dad on the phone, said, hey, this is what's going on. And he actually called his boss and quit and came home. Oh, oh I, I just, that, that's, that's a monumental decision. And it sounds like you, you really put family over finances. And also still fits that narrative, right? That somehow I'm more important. I'm special. And while that is kind of uh, incredible, just like you said, in terms of priority, um, at the same time becomes kind of ingrained in me and the, and, and the pressure that that would begin to build around who am I supposed to be? Like, as I hear that, like I, as an adult or, or even as a person, like I'm just wondering like sort of like guilt and shame, all of those things around that, because they're doing all of this for me, you know, and, and then, then, then that, mantle would almost set even harder on the shoulders and then you know i okay i have to do this for them and you know maybe i don't want you know i don't want to but i need to but i feel guilty about it am i wrong yeah more than anything i don't want to disappoint people um you know i i, I don't uh, i need to be viewed in this reputation in this positive way this process of making a mistake um, particularly if that mistake uh, impacts someone else, then, man, it is hard to live with the level of shame that comes with that. Well, and, and, I, and I know that you're, you're a big Superman fan. And like, to me, like that, that, like that just echoes to me of the, the mantle that Superman takes on because I mean, Clark Kent may be Clark Kent, but when he puts on that suit, you know, he has to be the symbol, the one he has to care for the planet. And the thing is, is that when do you take off your suit? When, when is it okay for you to be human and be fallible? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and something that certainly meant that it was something I, I needed to work with um, myself. Now, uh, I, I want to leave this for a moment because just in terms of uh, the developmental process. So coming, coming back to, uh, to my, my experience in childhood, you'll remember that I said I was very attached to one of my sisters. So when I was six years old, I was visiting at her house and I'd fallen asleep on their couch or something. And I woke up to her screaming, screaming, Jeremy, run, Jeremy, run, run, Jeremy. And, uh, and, and as I, as I was running out of the house, scared, afraid, panicked, not knowing what was going on, groggy because I'd been asleep and I could hear her husband beating her. And I was just this little six-year-old kid and I was terrified and their, their suite in the, in the building was in the basement. And 
And I, I remember staggering up the stairs and being in shock and wandering around um, the parking lot outside and you could hear her screaming. And I remember the, the panic I had and the shame that I felt for leaving her. And, uh, and one of my other brother-in-laws happened to just drive by at the time and he saw me and he knew something was wrong. And he um, talked to me and, and understood what was happening. He went down and ended the, the violence. Mm. Um, I don't have, I don't have memories. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know what I saw. Um, and probably part of that is sleep, you know, being in a deep sleep and being, you know, coming out of that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a big part of it as well is, is the distress that was associated with it. Now, I can't say this for sure, but you know, how, how can they not be related? By the time I was somewhere around seven, then I developed night terrors and they continued to happen until I was 12. So I would not be awake, but my eyes would be open. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the only thing I could compare it to, because I've never actually experienced this. I just remember feeling like I had schizophrenia, like that there was terrifying things in my mind that I couldn't handle or deal with. And, and my eyes would be open and my, my parents would be trying to talk to me or calm me down. And, uh, it, but I wouldn't be making eye contact with them because I was still in the, the nightmare for anyone that's experienced a night terror. They'll, they'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm like, I just, well, I mean, first of all, the clinical side of me goes, okay, like that, that, that is your amygdala and your hippocampus. And it's trying to process that traumatic memory. Um, but I, I can only imagine for you just backing up a little bit, um, like going through that whole process of, you know, you already having that mantle of, okay, I need to be there. I need to be, you know, perfect i need to not disappoint people so it just it sounds like at every or at a lot of key points it just though it's become so complex and ingrained in you to the point where, where your body just couldn't handle it um consciously but it was trying to deal with it uh, unconsciously through your dreams yeah yeah and in fact i just something fell together in my mind i didn't realize until this moment that is the night terrors didn't start until actually we moved. We moved from Cartston, Alberta. We moved to Sandy, Utah, and that we left the area that my sister lived in. And I didn't see her for uh, a fair amount of time. She went to came to visit at some point at Christmas, um, but yeah, I just realized that likely is relevant. After we moved, and I was no longer in the same community with her, that's when the, the nightmares started, mm-hmm. or the night terrors. Yeah, well, I mean, being being in a new environment, being away from your attachment figure that like that would have put you in a uh, that that puts any child in a state of hyper arousal. But it sounds like that just puts you over and above and just had that sure. manifest. Like, how was I supposed to protect her if she wasn't there? I mean, I couldn't protect her anyway. But. Yeah, but you 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 still had that 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 desire to do that, and I can't imagine. Yeah. I don't know, um, Amy, this is, might be the first time you've ever heard this. Is that correct? About, uh, about night terrors? Um, exposure to, direct exposure to domestic violence and all of that. Um, I think I've heard a few stories, but I don't think I've heard the one when you were just mm-hmm. a small child. Yeah, that's not the only sister that uh, experienced domestic violence. Since the other, the other one that had uh, been in a violent relationship... I, I didn't actually see, I, heard, I knew about it. I heard about it. And when this little kid, I'd fantasize about being able to protect them, about being able to somehow, you know, beat up the, their perpetrator. And at the same time, um, the, the men, uh, in particular, my, my one brother-in-law, I had been quite close to. And, and uh, he, he even made me... Um, a traditional bow and arrow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes it really complicated. Yeah. Well, and there again too, and 
It's how do you trust other men in your life, especially when it's people that you bring in and that are supposed to be part of your family, but then they're hurting your family too. And then fast forward as I'll jump ahead, way ahead. Then I'm in a master's degree at the Calgary Counseling Center um, doing the clinical training. And one of the things that was required is that we work in the domestic violence program with people that have um, been domestically violent. And, and I just sat there at first going, I can't. I can't. You're going to sit that person in front of me and, I, and I'm going to see them as a monster. I'm not going to be able to be have this non, you know, unconditional regard, this non-judgmental attitude. I can't. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, well, because there again, too, like it's, you've experienced that directly and it's like, I know what you did. I know the pain. How can, how can I, how can I see you as a human being when I've firsthand experienced the monster? And then even worse, um, then in my own life, in my own r- relationship, at times when, Anger would get away from me, and I and never have uh, have been physically violent, never you know called names or anything of of that nature. But when anger would would get um, large inside of me, and uh, and I would act in ways that were hurtful, then I felt the monster inside me, mm-hmm. and and it was really hard to take responsibility or accountability. Um, to be able to say, um, you know, I, I was in the wrong here. Um, I, I was acting in a way that, that I shouldn't have. I'm sorry for, for the hurt, trying to change that. Instead, uh, a defense mechanism would kick in to say, I'm not one of those monsters. Yeah, right there. Um, and, and I think for, like, anger is something that, I mean, a lot of us, Within society, we run away. We're told you can't be angry. You can't do these things. It's also about healthy expressions of that. But then it's part of that for you almost became an exile. And when he did come out, it was, you know, I, I don't, I don't want you to be a part of me. I want you to go away. So I'm just going to rationalize mm-hmm. that. Yeah. No. Interestingly enough, um, being in the domestic violence program uh, actually taught me a lot. Uh, as uh, one of the things that we would do is we used uh, an empty chair process. And, and so here we have a room full of men that aren't necessarily the most able to get in touch with their feelings. I see. <laughs> and, uh, and we had an empty chair and one man sitting facing the empty chair and the rest of the group watching and... What we would do is we would say, we want you to pretend, imagine, that your partner that you've been violent to is in that empty chair. Uh, and then we would lead them through a conversation in which they would talk to their partner and tell their partner what actions that they took that were harmful. And then they would move out of their chair and into the empty chair and, and try to take their partner's position about how did that affect this person and really sit in that place of empathy and, and really describe back how those things impacted them. And I saw, I saw men that really took responsibility and could really start to understand the impacts of their, their actions. And so, I, so it, was, it was amazing changed my heart to see that that there's more to people than being a hero or a villain mm-hmm. yeah i'm like, like like yeah like you went from seeing the world in black and white to really seeing the humanity behind us all yeah yeah absolutely yeah. wow I, i'm like and, and i almost wonder for you like what what was it like like i know that you like you said about that but um when you're going through that process, like, and you're having that internal dialogue, that internal um, connection, how did that impact or change your ability to connect with them professionally? Yeah, it didn't actually take very long for, for me to start to see the human. Um, 
especially for some of the people that I saw, um, they were new to Canada. That doesn't somehow make violence okay. Um, it It's just that uh, I heard stories about someone coming from the the Sudan and they had two wives and of course polygamy is illegal in Canada so you have to choose which one are you bringing and so instead they lied this is my sister because they would take that vulnerability and the possible consequences that would come with it being that they could be kicked out and sent back to Sudan um, and they would take that risk rather than leaving a person that they loved. Now that, that was the same person that they were violent to. And so then I started to understand and realize that people are complex and they're not just villains or heroes. Yeah, and, and I'm right when I hear that. Um, one thing that pops into my mind, because in, in certain Cultures. I mean, th- those things can be um, a cultural expectation, and you know, learning that that sort of cultural competency. You know, what does that really mean to separate ourselves out from that, and to realize that how we view things in our culture is completely different from another? Yeah. In fact, if I can stick with that for a second, uh, because this particular situation, I I just had an argument, basically. Session after session, as this person was required to come in for domestic violence counseling, and finally, I I, I realized, yeah, this isn't helping, mm-hmm. and um and and so I I said to the person, um, who am I to tell you that you got to live by these rules? That's that's not my place to 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 do that. Um, and we kind of ended a, a session there, and then when they when they came back to the next appointment, they said to me. They said to me, Jeremy, you don't get very far when you try to paddle your canoe up the river. I need to stop trying to paddle my canoe up the river. It's time for me to, to be a part of, of where I am at and mm. start to, to paddle my canoe down the river. Well, when you heard that, what, what was that like for you to hear that from somebody? Yeah, it was... It was pretty amazing, you know, and uh, and, and to to realize that um, that re- respect respect is a foundation, and understanding is a foundation of of change, and you you can't somehow make somebody be different. Mm. Yeah. And if you do, then you're gonna you're gonna trigger this counter will experience, and uh, so that that's a big big learning for sure. And I think part of that really then can come back and apply to me. That is to say, um, I also am not either a hero or a villain. Interesting. So, yeah, for you, I mean, to go back to the analogy of Superman, it kind of gave you that ability to kind of say, I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to be everybody's hero. I can take off my cape and just be Jeremy Alcorn. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So, Amy, um, is it, um, I'm just a little bit curious. As you hear your father's story of growth, like, what is that like for you to hear these experiences and, and, and what you know of him? Um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear how my dad grew up and just put it into context for kind of how he was as an adult and how he was as a parent towards me and how that um, changed or not really changed, affected the relationship Mm -hmm. between me and him. I'm, I'm kind of, I I know that we're, we're, we're um, talking about Jeremy's story, but I'm, if I, if I digress a little bit too much, you can tell me, but I'm a little bit curious um, in terms of, how you how you think that you've learned from your father and kind of internalized some of those lessons and those values? Um, maybe you could be a bit more specific and think of one of the values. Well, like, like what I'm thinking about is where he's learned about um, sort of like 
not going like not being in sort of a black and white perspective but learning shades of gray well i guess one thing that kind of pops into my head was just the values that we held in our home uh specifically when it came to church for example um my family is religious we're latter-day saints and um growing up we'd go to church and for me i didn't always enjoy it because it was pretty long it was three hours and it wasn't that i didn't believe in my religion it's just i didn't really feel connected to my youth group i didn't really feel like i had friends i found it really boring but i kind of felt this pressure from my parents like no you need to go to church and so for me i was kind of like fine i'll just do it to avoid that conflict whereas the relationship between my dad and my brother my brother would butt heads with him all the time and it made their relationship kind of go down and not good because of this counter will they'd clash so my dad found at one point he had to kind of let go on the reins it wasn't so black and white in a sense of i can control you and i can make you do what i want but it also wasn't on the flip side it wasn't oh you don't respect my values it's i need to give you your own choice and your own agency that sounds like that that that, that was kind of a seminal moment for you guys' relationship yeah and even him changing his relationship with my brother also made my relationship with my dad better too because he was easier on me as well i mean at the time i was a new adult as well so a lot of things suddenly became very relaxed but it definitely changed our relationships and dad i'm curious to hear what your experience was with jerem when you kind of let go of the reins yeah, sure. That's a bit of a long answer, and I will get specifically to that because really it, it uh, came to a point in my life when I knew that something wasn't working, that um, uh, the people that were really closest to me, my children, my, my wife, um, I, I, I didn't have this um, uh, really... I didn't have the relationship I wanted. I didn't have the closeness that I, I thought would be important. And I, and I felt in some ways that something was wrong. Something was, was broken. And uh, one of the key aspects of this is that um, my, my mom, who, as I said, had, had had arthritis from the time I was born, had really wanted a son. Um, well, one of the things from before I can remember there was an uh, expectation that I would serve uh, a mission, a two-year mission. And during the time that I was away doing that, then my mom went in for a shoulder repair and she died. And that caused a, a really massive interruption in my life, in my functioning. I knew that she wouldn't be okay with me um, coming home early and I knew that if I came back to the funeral that I wasn't strong enough to return back to my mission. So I listened to the funeral on the phone. And at the end, I was crying significantly in distress. And the technician that had set all of this up, I, I heard him and, and, and I said, hey, can you please tell my family that I'm okay? And I heard him catch as he started to cry. And he said, yeah, I, I'll do that. And... I wasn't okay. Um, I I lost 10 pounds in about three days. I would throw up every single day. I couldn't eat without throwing up. Spent months without sleeping. Went through this depressed state. And then, then I came home. And the night before I came home was the first night I slept. And when I came home, kind of came back to my protective factors, my family, my network. Um, the depression ended just that fast. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm better. But I, I wasn't. And, and, I, and I had this interrupted ability to be able to truly let someone in. If someone knew me, someone saw me, I was, I was a barrel of laughs. I was super fun. I was engaging. I was a human magnet that people wanted to be around. 
Um, but then I, I got married and I didn't really, I couldn't really let my, my wife fully know me. I couldn't really let her all the way in. And it wasn't until I was 42 years old when I really was like, hey, something is really wrong. And I got to go get this checked out. And my, my thoughts were, uh, oh, I have an attention deficit disorder. Um, and being that I had worked in mental health for a long time, I picked the therapist or the, uh, the psychiatrist I wanted to see and I got, uh, assessed and sure enough, I had attention deficit disorder and, and I thought, okay, just take this pill. It's fine. Mm. And, uh, learned very quickly. That's not how it works. While the medicine is helpful. Um, all of the other parts of my life, all of the other, what we've described, the mm. trauma, the way in which I developed in my attachment, all of those other things uh, are the foundation of disorder. Mm. Um, that, that is to say, whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, conversion disorder, those are effects. Those are, those are not causes. And, and so then for me, the symptomology uh, came out in, in a particular way that came out as an attention deficit disorder. And so, so, so then I was, recommended by my niece to read a book by Gabor Maté uh, called Scattered Minds. And when I read the book and I started to fully or started to understand what attachment really is and that human, uh, the human nervous system is wired from the outside in from birth and, and that attachment is how it's wired that was the, the starting point for me to be able to begin to change my relationships and, and that primary relationship being with me. So, so then I fell down this rabbit hole and I, I read book after book, all of Gabor Maté's writings, uh, plus Raising a Secure Child, um, Hold On to Your Kids. Um, and I read all these things and then I started to understand what, errors I had made. And actually there's a lot of guilt and shame there. And, and for all of you parents out there, um, just know that you do your best with what you know. And our society doesn't really understand how important attachment is and what it means to parent from attachment position. Um, so that, that's when things started to change. That's when my relationship changed with myself, my ability to um, regulate myself better um, to be able to welcome anger into my life um, because I understood what it was and that I, it didn't have to be so loud and big um, to be able to shift how I related to my children and to understand that they don't need me to teach them how to behave. I can, they need me to help them learn how to be a person, which means they need to know how to deal with their feelings. And how do they do that? They learn how to deal with their feelings by how I treat them. And, um, and so, so that was really the, the shift or, or the, the changing point uh, for me. Did that answer your question, Amy? Yeah, that was a good answer. I'll, I'll just say Dude, that, 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 that was beautiful. Like that, that, like, wow. Like, like when you mentioned about, um, because you, you and I have talked about like how you connect with your children. And I think, what was it the other day we were talking about? Um, oh, tap. Um, what was it that, that one lady, like where we were talking about um, how she approaches guilt and shame and where oh, yeah. people yeah. have enough shame within themselves and we don't need to add to that and it, and it's about joining with them in their in their shame and recognizing with that yeah, like allowing the the shame to hold them accountable mm -hmm. and not stacking that on top of them not stacking more shame on top of them yeah yeah, yeah. and you know and and i i really um, i resonated with the whole idea where you where you kind of talk about where it's our society really with this whole idea of, of individualism. I mean, it may be trite to say, but it takes a village to raise a child. 
where you can't, you're not raising an individual, you're raising another part of the community and where everything is interconnected. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm, a, I'm a huge video game uh, fan. I love video games. And there's a, a specific picture that I have that I used to think was so funny. And now it, it like represents, is burned into my mind. It represents um, the the problem that I had that I didn't know that I had that I couldn't see. Mm-hmm. And um, Amy is against my, my chest and shoulder. She's little, like may, maybe a year old ish. And she's asleep. And behind her back, I have a GameCube controller and I'm playing a game. And it just represents, I wasn't there. Like uh, I wasn't fully there, and I'm like I, I can I can just I can hear just when you say that like just like kind of looking and I almost feel like you're you're almost like wanting to shake that part of yourself and go what are you doing like that should be the person that you're you know connecting with but when I hear that too the fact that you're able to sit back reflect on that and. I've seen the way you interact with Amy now. And man, you two have one of the most unique relationships I've ever seen. You know, and that I can see that I as you've talked about your story, I can hear that there was an issue with connection. But and I mean this is just from an outsider's view, but I've never seen a child more connected to their parent than you. Oh, Trent. That was a, um, an amazing gift you just gave me. Hey, oh, I speak from the heart, man. You, <clears throat> you two, all your whole family that I've had a chance to interact with, you guys really do represent to me like connection and family and how you and uh, Gina, I hope I'm, I always forget her name. Yeah, that's Gaya, right. yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm terrible with names. But how you two parent and trust your children, that's a beautiful thing. And how you two have grown together and that you talk about this. I mean, I, I will say this, and I mean, well, hopefully I'm not saying too much, but if you guys ever get a chance to work with Jeremy and work with all of his skills and his ability, he is bar none, not a, only a great therapist, but a wonderful human being. Thank you, Trent. That uh, I feel that in a mutual way towards you. Thank you. Well, we... Uh, I'm definitely getting down to the emotional beds here. <laughs> yeah. I almost wonder if we're going from podcast to therapy, my friend. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. As I wipe my eyes of from tears. Yeah, no doubt. I, the, the tissue's too far away and the tears are running down my chin. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, no, fair enough. Um, how, how are you feeling right now, Amy? Um, Actually, just what you were just mentioning gave me some insights or thoughts that I wanted to share. So, um, dad, as you were explaining the domestic violence and abuse that you experienced with your sisters, whether that be firsthand or, you know, hearing it through others, um, you obviously felt very overprotective or maybe not overprotective, but very protective of the women who you loved in your life. And, this kind of distrust around their partners because this kept on happening a few times, right? But perhaps there's some change or growth in that because I was thinking about this year, I got in a relationship with someone um, online and because of COVID, it was very difficult to see him. Uh, He lived in the United States and I was obviously in Canada. So I got to visit him last January and you let me go do that. Let me go visit a stranger. And in April, I flew off and I got married to him, someone who you hadn't even met in person yet. And you trusted me and you trusted him, this person who you've only ever spoken to online. And so just that amount of trust and um, like freedom that you gave to me, even though I am an adult at this point, just really was amazing because typically people get married 
both sides of the family have already met them. Both sides of the family get to attend the wedding. But no, my family didn't get to attend the wedding at all. So that, that was really difficult for me. But it was amazing that my family was so willing to let me do it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in fact, that reminded me of something else, Amy. Um, uh, how many times uh, do you remember being spanked? I don't remember being spanked at all, other than on birthdays, we would do the spanking machine, which wasn't really real spankings. <laughs> it was just something goofy yeah. we did. <laughs> no, I, I remember you get, I remember, sorry, I remember you, you getting spanked just once. And, uh, and I, re- I remember um, seeing the mark that my hand left on your backside. And I remember just thinking this can never happen again. I, like I, when you when I when I hear you say that, and I mean I, I I can see the tears in your eyes again. You know, I I I almost wonder like you know it's like when you say it can't happen again, it's it's almost sounds like it's almost like a betrayal. How how can I um, strike someone that I love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know they talk about with. Spanking so much like that, you know, the fact that, that you're able to recognize that um, and the fact that people, because so many of us look at parenting as, so, um, especially within the traditional Western model as, you know, as power over and you're supposed to protect and you're supposed to guard. But sometimes, you know, it, it's not just about corporal punishment, but it's about guiding softly. And when you do that, you know, it, it's a level of disruption. And the fact that you recognize that disruption speaks volumes. And it sounds to me, and I may be wrong here, but it kind of led into your, um, that, that sort of need to protect, but it was coming from a different perspective. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah, for sure. That um, it certainly was a big learning moment for me. I learned way more in that moment from spanking Amy once than she learned from being spanked at all. Obviously, she doesn't even remember it. Yeah, oh, and the fact that, that she doesn't remember it, you know, it, um, it, sounds, it may also be the fact that, you know, how much love and how much connection was there to balance out that moment of disruption. For her, yeah. Um, so, I, uh, I I think probably I've I've conveyed the narrative that uh, that I was hoping to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm interested in, uh, in from the two of you if you have any kind of last thoughts or anything like that. Um, well, I'll be honest. I I really appreciate your vulnerability today because as we. As we started the conversation, that that's one thing as professionals that we're, we're not able to or we're not allowed to do or we're, we're not expected to do. And the fact that you're willing to open up, I just wanted to say thank you and, uh, you know, for this great honor. What about yourself, Amy? Um, I guess one thing I wanted to note was, Dad, when you were telling your story of uh, this journey you had on your mission, when your mom passed away, you were very depressed, you came home, the depression suddenly got better, then like 20 or so years later, you found out you had ADHD. I think a part that you left out was um, a very important part, in which one time you were even talking to me about it. You said that the depression symptoms went away, but there was still this hurt and hole in your heart that you had never healed because you just wanted to move on without acknowledging it. And you really stress the power of emotions and truly feeling them. And when you're talking to me about that, it was very impactful and very eye-opening for myself for allowing myself to feel my emotions. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Amy. You're very right. Mm -hmm. Well, um, um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience before we conclude? I just, just want to say that it doesn't matter where you're at in your life. Um, there isn't, I think, a person that I'm aware of 
that isn't influenced by their experiences, and we don't need to run away from them. Um, we we can we can look at them. We can integrate them. We can allow them to become part of who we are. They don't have to control us. They don't have to predict where we're going. Um, but we also can't ignore them and just think that that they'll go away. Absolutely, that's a perfect message to end on. And on that point, I'm Trenton Akers. I'm Jeremy Alcorn. And this has been Humanizing Mental Health. This podcast is intended as general information. We are glad that you joined us today. We hope this message has been as meaningful to you as it has been to us. If you're looking for help, you can find us on Facebook at Humanizing Mental Health or at HumanizingMentalHealth.ca. Humanizing Mental Health is a plugged-in media production.